0: Hello and welcome to Willosophy with Will Anderson podcast. Mike here to introduce this week's guest on the show. It's Laurie Kilmartin. Laurie is an American comedian and writer. She has a brand new uh, comedy album, which is available to stream on uh, anything like Spotify or Apple Music at the moment. It is called Corset. That's Corset by Laurie Kilmartin. And uh, she also has another album up, stream as well, which Will and her talk about in this conversation, called 45 Jokes About My Dead Dad. Um, And as you'll hear at the start of this conversation, Will is a huge fan of Laurie, speaks very highly of her and her comedy, and the two have a really great long discussion about uh, the comedy industry, certain issues that are currently facing the industry, certain controversies in the industry at the moment, as well as Laurie's relationship with her son and how that's developed during the pandemic. If you want to support Willosophy, you can head to patreon.com slash Willosophy and for as little as a dollar a month, you get access to these episodes one day early and without ads Or you can head to our Instagram at WillosophyPod to see all of our fantastic artwork side by side. As well as the Twitter. Let us know what you think about these episodes. We're getting some great tweets on the Twitter. Finally, head to Tofop.com. We do another weekly podcast called Tofop, uh, which is a conversation between Will Anderson and Charlie Clawson that's always great fun. As well as another weekly podcast called Fofop. Go to Tofop.com to check those out. But for now, I'll pass it over to Will Anderson and Laurie Kilmartin for this episode of Willosophy.
1: Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. This is how the show starts. If you're a regular listener, you know how this show starts. I ask my guests who they are. So who are you?
2: I am, well, my name is, the, I, I, I'm called Laurie Kilmartin. Um, who am mm-hmm. I? Uh, I'm just visiting for a little while till I float away. I think like all of us.
1: Okay, good start. You've found the vibe of the podcast right at the top, Laurie. I appreciate that. So for people that don't know Laurie, and you should, you should be a household name all over the world. This is what I'm going to stay up from. I'm going to start with the like the compliments I was going to give you off air that I decided, hang on, we should okay. do this uh, actually on the podcast. Okay. Uh, when I was living in America, a lot of people listening to this show regularly will know that I spent 10 years living in America, and the funniest comedian I ever saw working the L.A. scene was Laurie Kilman. I've said this before. I've said it publicly before. I think you are as good as any comedian in the world and your latest album, Corset, is out now and I highly recommend people listen to it. It is available in Australia. Make it number one on the iTunes in Australia and all around the world. That's what I would say to people. It is so good. Like, it is rare that I will just listen to... You know, somebody special Like all in one go And I listened to it And not only did I love it so much I went back and listened to your previous one 45 jokes about my dead dad Which I'm sure we'll we'll get to at some stage During this <laughs> chat as well But anyway, I just wanted to start with the compliments The album is so amazing You are amazing Thank you for doing the show I'm really, really rapt to have you here
2: Thanks, I'm I'm thrilled uh, I was thrilled before But now that I know uh, it's not a hit job I'm so yeah. excited <laughs> <laughs>
1: So okay, so uh, this show I do like to talk to people about what they think life is about, and I think you are a very interesting talk- person to talk about that with. So the first question does come loaded, and you recognised how loaded that first question was. Sometimes people just, sometimes people just say their name and their job, Laurie. That's and that's fine. That is the common response when somebody asks you who you are, but you saw through my vague premise and you wanted some more specificity and you're like, I'm going to break this down. I'm going to tell you what I'm called and then I'm going to tell you why we're here. And so let's start with that. The idea of like floating through this moment in time, why do you think we're here? Like what, what do you think humans are? Do you have a, a thought about, you know, what our purpose is, what we are in the corner of the universe. Is there a meaning to it? I
2: I was just wondering about that on Twitter as our, we had some really crappy election in the U S that would indicate that, you know, we're going to have fascism, uh, pretty soon, you know? Um, and I'm like, what, what am I doing? What I'm still writing jokes and, or I'm still like, that's my purpose. That's my focus. And, um, I, I kind of I'm kind of confused a little bit. You know, I, I think, you know, like they say, all politics is local. I think all obviously relationships are local. Right. So part of me is like, well, if I do a good job with my son, that's a great contribution to the, until until a mass shooter takes him out because what the country I live in. I mean, um, it's it's a, a little confusing right now. And um Uh, You know, to be like try to sell an album like who cares, who cares, who cares what a what a white woman's doing in America right now? You know, like I I, I don't know. But that's that's a different thing altogether. I guess we're here uh, ideally to to try to make each other's lives a little bit better. Although sometimes my behavior on Twitter would not indicate that I believe that. (laughs)
0: <laughs>
2: just, I've been. I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm, sometimes I launch myself into myself into conversations that aren't. I don't know either of the people, but I have an opinion on what they're talking about, and and I just. I'm like, what are you doing? Stop it! Just, just go away. Back down. You know.
1: What are you doing in that moment? Do you think? Because I think about this a lot. I, I'm very conscious constantly of this you know, idea, and look, I don't know enough about the, yeah, the research or the science behind this, so this is a very basic understanding of it, but this intellectual brain and this primal brain that both are operating at all times within you, and that you, like, sometimes one of them is winning and sometimes the other is winning. And it feels to me that when you get dragged into that Twitter altercation or you see somebody having an opinion about something and you're like, I need to correct this complete stranger <laughs> I <laughs> who i never met before and never will and might not even be a real person from the amount of numbers that they have at the end of their Twitter handle, yeah. but I cannot leave this hanging. Um, what do you think that is? Where does that come from, that idea that you need to involve yourself in that?
2: I think it's an idea of restoring justice. Like, you know, writing the scales a little bit, right? Like you feel like this, you know, I guess like a week ago, somebody had tweeted, like a journalist had tweeted, I was on a date and I, uh, you know, something about all of my journalism skills came into fore because all I did was ask the person questions, something about that. And then people just started owning, oh, like a bartender, like a nurse, like a healthcare worker. And I was like, just let her have her little tweet. Okay. Stop going oh and oh and oh and 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 then but I guess the way I phrased it was like oh I guess you're against blue collar workers. <laughs> so then, <laughs> then, like I went off I went away for a while and there was like 53 responses calling me an elitist who doesn't like home health care workers and I was like oh my god and and, I, and why did I jump in this I don't know this journalist I mean. Maybe she's a hack. I don't know. And, or, and I don't know anybody in this thread. I think they were all British people. <laughs> so- yeah, I mean,
1: we've talked to journalists before. Not all journalists are good. You know, the three of the questions might have been, where do you get your material? So, <laughs>
2: <laughs> Exactly.
1: <laughs> we've got to get past this point, I would have thought, as a world where we think that every tweet, in 140 or 280 characters can involve every aspect of an argument. Like you can't make a point or make a tweet or make a joke on Twitter and it, it encompass everything about that issue or debate. It is just impossible.
2: Uh, yeah, also I feel like I learn the most when I don't jump into the conversation and I mm. just read the thread or I read everything re- that people that are responding to it. That's when I learn. When I when I jump in and, and put something – uh, you know that that can be digitally accessed for the next thousand years now I have to defend it even if it was stupid or thoughtless you know or you know not well planned or whatever
1: you tweeted the other night and I it's one of those ones where I just never quite know whether it's a joke or a real thing which was about the idea that just before bed you were you know searching your own name on Twitter to say you know if there are any bad bad reviews of the <laughs> album that you could hate read before bed now I couldn't tell a hundred percent the amount of truth that was in that joke how much truth was in that joke
2: i i never searched my name uh but i wanted to see if anyone had reviewed my album so i searched my name and the word corset because that's the name of it and then up came an interview with um uh with uh rachel uh Brosnahan, who plays mrs Maisel. and somewhere in the interview she mentioned corset unrelated and then i came up as a, in a list of female comics she liked so that, that was pleasantly surprising.
1: Yeah, because how often, I guess my question is, do you engage in – are you worried? There's an expression on your face right now like something's gone wrong. I
2: just – t- that- I touch. <laughs> You're very observant. I did touch my mouse and I stopped recording, but I just started recording again just to give you a backup. And so uh, yeah. there'll, there'll be like three seconds missing, but it's for three frantic seconds. So yeah.
1: Well, that'll be good. That'll be good for somebody else to edit together. So that's fine. It's okay. Not my problem. That's what that is, Laurie. It's fine. So, um, okay. So what I was going to ask you was the level of in- engagement you have around people's like opinions of your work. So is it something that you care about, you know, either, either like if it's really positive, if it's really negative, are you the sort of person who really will engage with and read and hear what people have to say? Uh,
2: no, I don't think so. Hmm. Um, I guess if somebody had a really negative comment and a reason why, then I would be interested to know if I had uh, not had misspoken or, you know, because sometimes you can tell if the, it's the person that is either deliberately or they just don't get it, uh, have misread your your joke or something, your intentions. But uh, no, not not really, you know.
1: Well, that's good. I mean, I think that's a healthy thing, right? Like, But uh, I, it's, it's interesting, that moment where you can step away from some information about yourself, I think is a big moment in your life when you know it's there. Like, and you're like, okay. Like, so I'll give you a quick example because I think you'll enjoy this. I think you're familiar with a fellow by the name of Joe Rogan, right?
2: Yes, he is, So, yes, Joe yes, Rogan. Yes. <laughs>
1: Joe Rogan on his Instagram uh, the other day happened to put out what he thought was an Australian government ad about vaccinations and he posted it as if it was this dystopian future in Australia and look at these ridiculous ads I'm making because the advertisement uh, was like a guy in a cafe he starts having an allergic reaction to somebody somebody is about to shoot him with the EpiPen and then the guy starts asking the series of questions that anti-vaxxers ask about the vaccine so he's like who made it what company is it how much research is done what about the blind trials what does Joe Rogan think as he's dying he's like why won't somebody call Joe Rogan So, Joe Rogan posts this on his Instagram as like, look at Australia. It's a dystopian future, you know, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, it turns out, Laurie, that is a satirical advertisement from my television program that I make here in Australia. I and love so it. Yes. So, it's fair to say somehow I just got dragged into Joe Rogan's world, like, Through no fault of my own, Like, you know, I had what I had the last couple of days, I've just had a lot of at mentions from Joe Rogan fans who were mad at me for something Joe did, basically. I think it's the world we're currently living in. And so on this post, there are 22,000 comments.
0: Oh, my God. And a lot of them
1: pinged on my Instagram. And I, in one of the things I'm most proud of myself that I've ever done in my life, have (laughs) not looked at any of them. That is, I'm just like, I have not looked. I, I just, I'm like, no, there is no good for me there.
2: Well, it, it's good comedy. So other than no. a laughing emoji, that's the only, that's all <laughs> you need. And so any comment on it is just going to d- drag you down a, a terrible, a terrible well. So you made the right decision.
1: So what is the role of comedy in times like these, Laurie, what do you think? Like you talk about the idea of like releasing an album in these times Like So you've obviously thought about that yourself a little bit, which is like, what is the purpose of this? Why is this valuable to the world at this time? Why do you think it is?
2: Well, isn't comedy supposed to make you laugh mostly, you know? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, what's comedy, you know? Like people keep saying it's supposed to make you think or it's supposed to make you change you. And I think it's just supposed to make you laugh for the amount of time that you watch it. And give you a break from yourself. I I don't know that. Does any does anyone watch a comedy special and come out of it changed of their opinion Uh, about something that the person joked about? It just seems like like uh, a lot of comics are asking too much of of comedy and a lot of the this the talk about it is asking more from it than it promises. It's like a it's a nightclub performance, you know, it's a, it, it's, it, it, it's something that's interrupted by wait staff, at least in the States. It's, it's, it's like a low art form, you know, it's not, it's not a Ted talk, you know, so I don't know what people want from comedy. You should laugh and just be, t- you know, taken away from your life for a few minutes, just like any other kind of performance. And, but they, you know, some other performance, a drama would take you away in a different way, you know?
1: And yet, funnily enough, like, that's the argument that you often hear from people who are terrible comedians. <laughs> like, what, what you've just said is, you know, often the, 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 the hackiest, worst, old school, racist, sexist, homophobic person justifying their completely outdated act. They're just like, it's just meant to make you laugh. It's not meant to make you think this is ridiculous. And I would, in a way, I understand what you're saying, by the way, but I just think for the people who are listening, your comedy does make people think about their lives. It does challenge people. Like, it's not like you are making, you know, disposable comedy. I mean, 45 jokes about my dead dad is as good a conversation about loss and grieving and, you know, parenting and relationships with parents and relationships with death and what life's about and what those life, and and being funny through it and the role of humour in dark times. Like, it's all of those things all at once. Well,
2: you know, I mean, I'm but I'm still going for laughs every single time, right. you know, and I'm still still jokes. It's still, like, jokes. I, it's I still wanted,
1: 45 jokes. Yeah,
2: I wanted, like yeah. I want to talk about white people somehow, mm-hmm. but it's really hard to do without sounding like you're preaching, you know, and and it's weird because every comic does start out with that same thing of I want to make people laugh, but I I some I feel like these these sort of hacks that start cheerleading and you know, it's like are you. Like, the noise that's coming from the audience when you're on stage, you think that's a laugh? Because (laughs) it's a, it's a, yeah, you know, it's a clap. It's not a laugh, you know? Do you even know what a laugh sounds like? You know what I mean? So, yeah, it's, it's, uh yeah I, I do want to like I I have some stuff about cis women and trans women and um, I think it's it's still funny it still gets laughs and it's but it expresses my point of view but I um, I don't know that it would change the mind of some you know of a Joe Rogan thinker in the audience you know
1: okay so I I, I what is your perspective when you're looking at a joke? Are you just like do you start with like a topic I mean, Yeah. Say for corset, right? Like, is that just a series of jokes that you start working on? Do you start with a topic? Do you start with inspiration? Like what sort of writer are you when you're trying to put together, you know, a show like that?
2: I, you know what, I, I, um, as I'm trying to come up with new openers for my sets now, I, I, I like a really short, fast joke up front that tells the audience a lot about me and where I come from very quickly um, that's my that's my number one thing. I'm always searching for, and then I kind of go off from there. But I'm not. Um, I love how the Australian comics will like. It, it seems like I don't know. You you guys turn over like you start with a show idea, and you you go. You're, you're almost like playwrights in a way. Every single year, it feels like. Am I am I wrong about how you guys?
1: Yeah, part. Of, I mean, part of that is just probably. Yeah, I mean, it's the nature of the size of our country, right? Yeah. Like, right. if you want to be a full-time professional comedian, you need to have a new show pretty much every year. Yeah. At, le- at the very minimum, every second year. Like, I've written a new show for the Melbourne Comedy Festival before the pandemic, 24 shows in 24 years. So, like, you know, b- because it's the only way that I can keep doing the amount of stand-up that I wanted to do. If I didn't write a new show, I wouldn't be able to do go to those places and do those shows and do those gigs. So... Would the show be better if I could do it every two years? 100%. Because by the time that I get to the end of the tour and I have to start thinking about the new one, it's just getting really good. So there is a real downside to the nature of the show cycle in Australia. But it also means that the easiest way, and as you you would be able to understand, is often if you have a theme or an idea, it is easier to produce that amount of material rather than trying to just bit by bit put together a show over a you know, that year cycle.
2: Yeah, I'd rather do it the hard way. (laughs) (laughs) The hard way that takes longer and is less lucrative. That seems more appealing to me. Uh, (laughs) No, I mean, I I don't know. I just, I just, you know, write jokes as I write them. It's mostly from my life. And so um, I guess the the five or six years that, uh, are covered in my album. It's material I wrote from, I guess the age of my son's age from like age five till 12. And at some point my mother, my dad died during that, but I saved those jokes for another album and uh, my mother moved it in with me. And that, and so those were the conditions under which I wrote material. I wasn't trying to, uh, specifically, uh, Address a theme, but the th- I think the theme was I'm I'm being suffocated by these two people. <laughs> <And> <laughs> please, somebody help me.
1: <laughs> I mean, that is the theme, and it brings me to something that I wanted to ask you, which is because. You, you you learn a lot about you know through your jokes you learn about a lot about at least what you're publicly wanting to say about the relationships with both your parents and and your child. like there is a lot of that. you know a lot of your jokes are about those sort of things and they paint certain pictures like how accurate or how much responsibility maybe is a better question, do you feel to? accurately represent them or is it the opposite where you're like oh it's great that my son had this whole range of years in between where I wrote jokes because I'm not really talking about him I'm talking about different bits of him or different versions of him like is it is there a responsibility to like bring the reality to stage or is it very much a comedic representation of you know those relationships
2: yeah I feel like uh, my responsibility is to figure out how to get a laugh with a t- you know like I'll, I'll probably start with something that's super true and um, and it gets no no laugh <laughs> my, I don't know what other people my truth is like pretty dull yeah. so then I start moving it around adding a few things and then it morphs into whatever it morphs into um, uh, uh, so uh, like uh, so no I don't I don't uh, I by the time it gets to the point where it's a joke in my act that's working really well, it's really disconnected from reality. Uh, Yeah. So.
1: Yeah. So that's, I mean, that would be my assumption and it feels like also the right thing to do, particularly with the style of some of the jokes. Like, is it like there is a hyper inflated sense of, Your say without wanting to spoil it, like your relationship with your mother and the various struggles with your relationship with your mother, that can sometimes feel incredibly harsh on stage. You know, the jokes themselves are incredibly harsh, but of course
2: that I'm trying different ways to kill her. Yeah, yeah, I think for some people that that seems harsh. I guess. (laughs) Well, I'm just glad I recorded it when I did because she died six months later. So um, (laughs) I had to get those jokes down so that that was fortuitous timing.
1: But I guess the curiosity then is because you have this life, obviously, where you're balanced. I mean, she's living with you. This is the actual reality of your life. Like, clearly, some of the the worst aspects of the comedic material aren't supported by the reality of the situation, which is clearly that you have opened your home for your mother and made her part of your life and all these sort of things as well, right? So... Uh, is she fully aware of the jokes that you were like? Was she? Was that something that she knew about the fact that you would make those sort of jokes?
2: Yeah, a little bit. She, you know, but I mean, at the same time, at like, I would, I would be saying. um you know, I forget, I already forgot the joke about, uh, Oh, the, I loosened the grip on the, on the shower handle so that she would slip and fall. Right. At the, I, I said it a little more artfully, but, yeah. um, at the time that I'm doing that, I, I also took out the bathtub and put in a, a walk-in shower so she wouldn't fall. Like I almost yeah. kind of <laughs> was doing, I resented the good things I was doing in real life. And so I turned them into bad things on stage.
1: And so what, I mean, obviously comedy is first, like funny is first, but is there a role that that plays for you? So let's think less about what it means for the audience comedy now and what it means for you. Like what is it that you get out of the style of comedy that you make? I mean, is there an element of like release in being able to tell those stories or is it about being in that moment and being funny and comedic and some sort of energy? What, like, what are you getting from it when you're doing comedy?
0: I always
2: feel like, oh, I got away with it again. I feel like yeah. I, <laughs> I pulled off a jewel heist, <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, yeah. It, it, it's, it's, um, it's, it takes so long and, and every time I start with a new chunk that's sort of not working, I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll never get this. I'll never get this. And then it, it might be two years of just like figuring out where where the beats are, where the jokes are, where where it gets silly and crazy and absolutely off the the real story. Um And it's real frustrating. (laughs) Like, I, I was listening to some old, um, old, old, like set recordings. And I was, I heard like the earlier versions of this thing in my, on my album about teaching my son Spanish, making sure he's bilingual. And it was just so, oh, I was like, oh, I can't believe I kept going with this bit when it was so bad for so long. Like there was one key laugh. And that that one key laugh made me (laughs) hang on to it and and figure out the other three or four minutes, you know?
1: Okay, so um, I'm interested in why comedy for you? Like, when did you start? Like, what was it that drew you to comedy in the first place?
2: I started in 1987 and I was... um, I had dropped out of college in 84. I was a freshman. I dropped out uh, and I was really lost and very depressed. And... I was living with my parents. I'd moved back home. I was like telephone soliciting for money. I was that like, that's just calling people, you know, randomly and asking them if they want to subscribe to newspaper or whatever, whatever, whatever people did in the 80s. I don't even remember anymore. And uh, house cleaning, just stuff like that and going, what the fuck? What happened to me? I was on a trajectory and I completely fell off and I didn't understand why completely. And uh, I started just wandering into San Francisco. I lived in East Bay uh, in Walnut Creek and uh, going to see stand up shows and really loving it. And, um, uh, you know, I I I I, I kind of wanted to try it. And I think seeing bad comedy really um, inspired me because I thought that I could be as good as this Really average person who, <laughs> who, who, who I didn't think was very funny. I'm like, you know, so, um, so that's how I, how I kind of tried it. And then San Francisco was really cool back then. You know, I mean, it's cool now, but it's different now. And um, uh, there was like a huge drag community, and there was there's like this this competition called the Miss Hate Ashbury competition. Hate Ashbury was this part of San Francisco is pretty famous in the '60s mm-hmm. and. And, uh, and I was one of the few non-drag performers. And I just did stand-up. And I, w- I just remember being, like, in the dressing room and just watching them put their makeup on. I'm like, oh, my God, this is so beyond what I'll ever be able to do. It was fascinating. I, I don't even have a punchline <laughs> to that story. But it was kind of a, a magical time in San Francisco. Like, maybe, like, if I think timeline, it's obviously the pe- People had f- figured out how to curb AIDS a little bit, you know. So it wasn't; it, there, it, everything was sort of popping back up again. It felt felt really lively and exciting, as opposed to, you know, horrifying and depressing. Maybe in the earlier '80s when it, it was just coming on and no one knew what it was and stuff like that. So that was a it was a fun time to be, be in San Francisco every night. You know,
1: I loved what you said about like seeing somebody that you thought you'd be better than because I often like, give that advice to people. I said, like, if you want to start in comedy, go and see some shows. And it won't be the person who's the best person on who's going to inspire you. They'll intimidate you. You'll be like, I can never do that. Like, but there'll be there'll be somebody on who's, like, making a living out of it or whatever, who's no good. And you'll be like, I could be better than that person. <laughs> like, I can't take the main guy's job, but I could definitely take that dude's job. For sure. When does it start to be something that you think, oh, maybe this is you know something i want to pursue as a career
2: I, I i was all i i did it once and then i had then i had to like rest for a year <laughs> <You>
0: ever, <laughs> like i was like it was so
2: intense i couldn't i'm like oh my god <laughs> but i thought about it nonstop, and i took comedy uh-huh. classes and i kept going to shows and stuff like that i'm like i'm going back i just i just need to recover from that experience And, um, and then, then when I went back, then I, then I just never stopped. Um, it just went to, you know, it was like, there were so many open mics and there was a lot of clubs, um, within say an hour and a half driving range, um, where you could, once you started emceeing, you could make a couple hundred a week, you know, maybe two weeks out of the month, which was livable, especially when I was living with my parents, all I do is pay for the car. And I had, I had such a good time, you know, it was, I, I did a ton of driving, um, uh, you know, all over the Northwest United States. There's this guy who's kind of famous, um, David Tribble, he used to book these one-nighters called Tribble Runs and you go like Tuesday through Saturday and each, each gig was like in a different state practically, you know, like you would have either between two and seven hours of driving every single day to the next gig. They were always a gig where you stayed in the hotel and worked in the lounge.
0: <laughs> you, know, you just went
2: downstairs to the lounge almost 90% of the time. So it was like one night that the town came together for uh, comedy and stuff. So I learned a lot. There were pretty, you know, pretty wild crowds, um, drunk, you know disrespectful. <laughs> so you, a lot of comedy is crowd control.
1: Okay, so that's interesting to me. Like, yeah, it is, absolutely. And, like, obviously learning to MC, going out on the road, you're going to learn those skills. But do you remember the first great joke that you wrote? Like, one where you just went, oh, hang on. This is, like – I feel like this is a unique joke. I feel like this is the joke that, like, identifies me as being somebody a bit different to everybody else.
2: I I didn't think – I don't know that this was, like, an identifier, but I remember thinking of this while I was driving, like, a – through Nevada. So say from from Utah to California, that, that sort of thing across 80, interstate 80. And I remember uh, the joke was, um, and this is a lot, uh, you know, probably not f- funny now, but like my, when I, so I, I, I'm in my 20s. So me getting my period just, you know, is like 10 years ago.
1: And uh,
2: <laughs> I, know why, I wouldn't talk about it now, but my mom, I remember my mom when I first got my period. My mom said, "Oh, my baby's become a woman." And then I remember what what she said when I didn't get my first when the first time I didn't get my period. Oh, my baby's become a dirty little whore. And then sort of like <laughs> you know that matchy matchy of yeah. setup and setup are gonna yeah. match, and punchline and punchline are gonna match. I was like, "Whoa, oh my!" Like that was like new structure for me that I hadn't been able to think of before. I guess.
1: Yeah, it's great because it's. it's- it's very representative in a way like i'm glad you identified that joke because in a way it tells a lot about you know the sort of writer and comedian you've become because there's so much in it it's economy of words It's a proper joke, you know, there's like, like you said, matchy match, there's a sort of pull away and reveal, there's that real sense of, you know, you learn something about your mum and her perspective to you in that moment, it already has that relationship with your mum stuff in there that like obviously became very thematic through a lot of your work, so... Good, good pull. I like that. That was a good. Uh... That's
2: so funny. I used to do my mom's voice a lot, you know, like when uh-huh. I was on the road. And then when I moved to New York, this comedian, a female comic goes, uh, oh, you can't do your mom's voice. Letterman hates it. And so I dropped like <laughs> 20 minutes of material
1: In Specifically your mom's voice. David had a strong opinion on that.
2: <laughs> Letterman goes on tirades about that Joanne Kilmartin voice. I never did Letterman anyway, so I should have kept it away. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh okay so i want to talk to you about like i mean I've, we've talked about comedy but i also want to talk to you about just like life that because that's what this podcast is about so the central premise is i ask people if they have a life philosophy of any kind and it really is just i mean i guess the whole point of this show is yeah, trying to work out why we are here and, and not the answers, but what the questions are and what the questions people ask each other and ask themselves and, you know, how you view your life and whether you have any framework within which you, you, view, you view your life. So the way I ask that is asking if anybody has a philosophy of any kind. So do you have a philosophy of any kind?
2: You know, I, I it's weird. This is a weird time in my life because in some ways for the first time, like my both my parents are dead. So whatever that relationship is, me being a daughter, that's gone, you know, and there's some sort of social obligation to being the child of somebody, you know? And so that's a strange thing. And then I worked for Conan for a long time and my job just ended, you know, the show went off the air. (laughs) I wasn't fired guys. (laughs) And, uh, but, but, uh, you know, since my son was born, I've just been scrambling so hard and, and, um, and not thinking and just uh, just doing as much as I can just to stay afloat and to and to not drown. Right. And so right now, you know, my son is 15, he can pretty much take care of himself. My mother's dead. She doesn't need me. Uh, My job ended and I'm kind of trying to figure out, like, well, what am I doing? You know, like. what what have i been doing <laughs> you know i i've just been trying to like like i feel like someone threw a baby at me like i because i didn't get pregnant on purpose and they're like here do take care of this and i'm like okay i will um and and so that sort of changed how i approached comedy uh, or how i did in my career i got really you know i started you know making sure i had a writing job first before stand-up and and um so, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I feel like I, I am trying to figure out who I am now. Because before all that, before the baby was thrown at me, uh, I was just getting back at Jackie Snyder and other people from sixth grade who were mean to me. <laughs> like that, that was my philosophy is I'll show you. Um, yeah. I, will, I will be successful and you will know my name, which is a terrible way to live. Like that was my first forty years. I never even got over that, and then my son so discombobulated me that I kind of forgot about it, and uh, and now and now uh, now I'm kind of figuring out. Well, what what am I still doing? You know what what's what's next? I I mean obviously what's next because I have to have something come up next. But yeah, I I I'm sort of wondering right now. I I, I feel like I've been motivated by unconscious desires for so long that I I. I the idea of being conscious of doing something it's it's a new idea for me you know
1: is it an exciting idea or is it a terrifying idea or is it a whole bunch of those things yeah
2: yeah both yeah both you know uh, you know the money thing is always terrifying but um, but but and part, but part of me's like well i wonder if i could just lean in on stand up and see what happened you know i i i was only a stand up for a really long time and I did okay. I didn't, you know, I didn't have like great success. I had medium success. And then I did as well as I could while I was raising a baby. And now I'm now I'm like, well, what can I do now? I mean, I'm also fifty six and this industry hates any woman over thirty five. So part of me is like, What do you why? Why try? But why not? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't really know anymore.
1: Yeah, okay. So but I mean, it feels to me, and again, look, you know, I, I'm not the industry. I'm just one person. Like So, but it feels to me that, this could be a great time for you. Like without wanting to ruin your life by encouraging you to do something that would be you know, like you look for five years from now, you're like fucking Will Anderson. I wish I'd never had that conversation with him. And he'd been so encouraging of me doing this. But Why did you tell does... me
2: to move to Austin? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. You've just got to start talking about like how you don't trust vaccines a little bit more. <laughs> Get a beer, slightly bigger audience. Yeah. Um, so, well how do you feel about because I think that is the context right because it's not just about who you are and what you are doing because I think that and I honestly mean this I do not say it to everybody at the start of the podcast like when I saw you gig when I was over there every time I saw you gig you were the best person on and every time I would go home and talk to somebody and say why isn't admittedly some of these names have not dated well but I would say things like why isn't Laurie as big a star as Louis you know what I mean like <laughs> Sure. I that one did know why now. <laughs> 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 but, you know, there, obviously there are some structural issues with that, clearly, right? Like, you know, like you said, the industry isn't set up for somebody of your, you know, age and sex to be suddenly super successful. But is there wow. any hope that that is changing? Do you feel any optimism that the industry is expanding and those voices are being heard more?
2: I don't know. I mean... In a way, yes. I I feel like when they're looking at younger comics, for sure, they're getting more interested in in diverse voices. Right. But I I kind of and this is self-serving because I'm only talking about my age group, but I do feel with women my age. There's like this feeling of, well, you didn't make it when you were young. So obviously, why would we why would you make it now? You know, like you had your chance. It didn't work for you. So go away. That's kind of how it feels, you know. So but it it doesn't serve me to spend a lot of time thinking about that because it makes me depressed and bitter and angry at other comics that are getting opportunities that they actually deserve, you know. So, yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, like, the album's been going well so far, right? Like, you know, it's it seems like it's, like, you know, that people are... I mean, obviously, for people who don't know, you have an excellent podcast, The Jackie and Laurie Show, which is, I highly recommend if you love, you know... I mean, if you love... I mean, Jackie's been on my shows before, and I absolutely adore her. She's the best. and But the two of you together are just... There's something about like, your personalities, you know, thrown together, that there's, you know, plenty of love there but enough different things there that make it, you know, a really interesting yeah, – and if you're interested in comedy at all, also a great podcast to listen to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, sometimes you're going to have to guess who they're talking about. But, you know, I might start a WhatsApp group and we can all get together and we can swap our choices around. But uh, – so have you been, like – I guess what I'm asking and it's a hard question to ask you is did what were your sort of hopes and aspirations when you put out the album and do you feel like at the moment those ho- hopes and aspirations are either being fulfilled? Are they being surpassed or are they, did you have higher hopes?
2: Um, I guess, you know, when I was um, listening to the tapes, I, I just was like, this is awful. This is garbage. I can't, I this is bad. Right. And I had a really hard time. And then Dan Dion, who's at 800 pound gorilla, He's like, it's great. I'm like, he's lying to me. I, get, you know, <laughs> I still automatically think people are lying, but I, I'm trying to be more gracious when in my head, I'm like, wow, I didn't, even you would lie to me. Wow. Well, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Nice to know.
1: Okay. What do you, what do you, what is that though? What do you think that is? Where does that come from?
2: That i think. I don't know, you you, you you once you once you've done these jo- a certain amount of jokes for a certain amount of time, they're like old they're like old clothing that is it's to be, you you you're you're you've worn it too many times and uh just be, you know you forget that the audience hasn't heard it, right? And that so so and that's also just normal self-hatred, I think. Um, I do, yeah. I do wonder. But
1: I know, I, it, here's what I would say about that analogy. That's all, all I would say about that is that it, I don't think it is. old. like I get the idea of old clothing because like comedy is at its best when it's old clothing, right? When you've worn it in, like, you know, for the comedian, like, you know, once they are natural with it, like once the jokes don't feel like jokes, that's actually when it's at its best, but it doesn't present like old clothing to the audience. It's new clothing. What you have is expensive clothing. You have something that some you have like you know something that someone is made look casual and it's very comfortable, but it like looks you know it's expensive. That's what you have, you know. That's that's what your material is.
2: <laughs> um, thank you. Um, yeah. yeah uh, so it, so to kind of answer your question, I guess I I hoped it wouldn't be poorly received, and I as far as I know, I haven't seen anything bad, so that's okay. Um, and uh, you know. Uh, I guess um the other thing I, I think like I've been so annoyed by like the lack of a Netflix special or the lack of all these things right that I see other people oh, getting. And, you know, people on Twitter, like if I if I complain about it, which I do every once in a while, I think I blew a gasket when Rob Schneider had a Netflix special. I was like, what the fuck? (laughs) Right. And uh, I think I went on a thread even perhaps that day. But uh, so then there's all these accounts. Well, who are you? I've never heard of you. So you must be. And uh, so at least now I have a link to throw under a who are you, I've never heard of you, you know?
1: What about audio versus, uh, like, video? Like, the idea of a film special versus an audio special? Because here's what I'm going to say. I loved it. I loved it more than I love, uh, like, sitting down and watching a Netflix special. I think it's better. Like, for me... I didn't, like, I can imagine, you know, you on stage. I had all the information I needed to be able to put together what I needed, you know. And the words work. You know, I think it works better. I think I certainly enjoyed it more because I listened to it rather than watching it. Do you think that is a thing?
2: I, I think it definitely is a thing. I think be, maybe because the industry, the comedy industry, uh, gives specials. And so that, that that's their power is... Uh, I think I'm going to give you an hour on Netflix. I'm going to give you a half hour on HBO Max. So that's their power. Anyone can make an album. You know, you really anyone really can. And it's pretty cheap to do. You can make your own special, but it'll cost you 20 to 25 thousand dollars. And I don't know many comics who are in a position to just gamble all that and hope that somebody will buy it, you know, so maybe the the special that you watch The visual special is is given more credence or more more weight or authority because it comes from the industry who doesn't even fucking go out to comedy clubs. I don't see any executives from Netflix at shows, you know, like, are they out or they just you you never see these people out watching a stand up unless they have disguises.
1: No, they saw Rob Schneider doing a really good set at a comedy club, and they said, we've got to get him on Netflix.
2: Oh, my God. Like, I was, to you know, I, I was at, that was like during the height of COVID, and we we're all doing our little Zoom shows, right? We're all trying not to get rusty. All these people working in the fucking dumbest conditions of stand-up comedy, which is doing Zoom shows, and a special goes to this guy. What? I don't see him on any Zoom shows. I don't see him doing these (laughs) shitty gigs and I know why he got it. And it's like, you know, I understand fame and stuff, but God dang, that made me mad. I'm still mad. And God bless him, of course. And, and all of his opportunities, (laughs) it's, I'm mad at the industry that, you know, that not necessarily, I I don't know him. Yes. It's
1: not, it's not his fault that he has lucked into like with his, amount of talent he's lucked into a great career that is actually not on him it's not his fault he's adam
2: sandler's friend now let's come on let's be
1: nice (laughs) (laughs) uh okay so when it is you then like if let's go into this world that 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 it it is going to be a laurie kilmartins you know stand-up you know world let's let's imagine that for a minute like that this is You know, you do lean into it, and you know, like you're this amazing at it with the time and you know opportunity you've put into it. Now that you know, you know a dozen of your best jokes a day aren't going into Conan O'Brien; they're all going, you know, straight to you and your act. Then, like, let's see what the cap over this is. How good this could be? Do you think? Because this is always an interesting question. Do you think that there is like a, a huge improvement in what you're doing? In you? Like, do you think if you worked harder at it, if you dedicated your time to it, that you would be better at it?
2: Yes, I think um, I would write faster for sure. Mm. Mm hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, the thing of writing in the back of the room five minutes before you go on stage, I mean, that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) It's not bad, (laughs) but it's definitely not enough, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, I felt like I became a much better joke writer after I started writing for Conan because, uh, of his, what he wanted from us and so I just sort of automatically started applying it to my own my own writing for myself. N- you know not that I was writing topical gyps j- jokes, but just kind of maybe structurally and stuff. Um, so yeah, I mean uh, you know I, I, I uh, part of, you know I'm thinking well I could if I didn't make any money, I could live for a year, you know, but I would make a little money but yeah <laughs> I don't know I always <laughs> We'll see. It's it's you know like I still have to be home because my kids are freshmen in high school. There's still four more years of that, but um, but it I, I can you know perhaps start doing more weekend stuff and and uh, uh, yeah we'll we'll see. I mean I have like you know I, that's what I'm I'm going to be at this club in Austin called the Creaking Cave for um, Thanksgiving weekend, and so it'll be the first weekend after my album's out, and I I want to have replaced most of the material, you know. There's only one joke I still want to tell anyway cuz I tell it better now than when I told it on the record and everything else I'm like it could be
1: done with, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um
2: so uh so that's kind of like what I'm working for now and and I I'm not writing thematically, I guess. I'm still writing uh, uh, I'm still writing about my own life, but my life is very different than it was 2 years ago. So it'll, it'll, because, because I'm the theme, I guess it'll, there will be a theme at some point.
1: Did you feel like the pandemic like had any major effect, like, you know, really philosophically on your life? Like, I mean, obviously there were things that happened during that time, but do you think the pandemic itself, do you think the world's changed and has it changed your perspective to the world at all?
2: Hmm. Um, Well, You know, number I mean, I I took a direct hit because my mom died of COVID. Right. And um, and then the other thing that was that was really cool was that because my son was home all the time and I was home all the time, we just started watching a lot of anime together. And whereas I think before the pandemic, I would have gone into the high school years with him not having a common language. Now we talk. We can talk instantly about anime that we've watched and go over the storylines and go over the characters. I mean, there's this anime called Attack on Titan, which is so good, and there's like a million ways to look at it, and it's like it's it's an ever changing orb, you know, that you gaze into. So, um, so that was pretty awesome, and I've really enjoyed being, um, you know, since Conan ended, I've been like. A stay-at-home mom, which would—if you told me this when I was 25, I would have, like, been sick to my stomach. I'm like, oh, I became what my mom was. Like, oh, God— and uh, it, it's been so cool to be home when my kid gets home and, to, you know, when he played water pool, play, went to the games, like all this normal stuff that I just sort of really looked down on. And one of the reasons I got into comedy was to be just completely different from the suburban life that I was that I was exposed to the stay at home mom who has, you know, no power, at least what I observed, very little power over how her life goes, you know, because she's tethered to a husband, and I was like, "I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna be tethered to anyone except this child for 18 years." <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I mean, that part's been kind of cool. And uh, how how I will apply that as we come out of the pandemic sometime next year, I, I'm not really sure exactly. You know, uh, the idea of doing Zoom shows is, you know, I would never would have thought of it before, and And I I have enjoyed not doing them for a while, but I could see like Maria Bamford. She's such a genius. Like she was doing this before the before COVID existed. She would just do these little either do a show for one person at a cafe just to warm herself up or do something online. And I think that's that's a great way to do it, too. That's a that's kind of a nifty way to get stage time without leaving your your child who's failing Spanish at, you know, for uh, alone for the night before a test or something, you know what I mean? And just
1: such an opportunity, obviously, for people to connect with you who aren't going to ever be able to be in a comedy club to watch you do your comedy. Like, that's the other thing. Like, you know, if it really is about, I have, you know, these jokes and I think people will enjoy these jokes and like, not just people in clubs around LA or the, you know, the you know fl- one hour flying distance from LA so that I can be home for my kid. Like, I mean, these are, you know, there are people all over the world, you know. You, album, as we speak, is number one in France. Like, I mean, there are people, number one, number one in France. <laughs> Saw saw that this morning Saw that this morning
2: Uh, Is that something Jackie said that I thought she was joking
1: No it's true I, gotta, I it was gotta, on French iTunes, number one.
2: What? I got to no, go You check know what? It out.
1: It's going to oh, be number that's one on Oh, It's because of
2: the word corset. Here's the thing I've learned, Will.
1: <laughs> you know what? Names it might well be so important.
2: Okay. So w- it was fascinating. So when, I, w- when I, I hit number one on iTunes for like a day, like I beat Bo Burnham for a day. But I, of course, I was looking at the whole list. Okay. The whole yeah. list is it's all white men. There's like I don't know who's buying the albums because there's no not a single black comic on the Mm. list, right? Right. Um, And there's two women. It's me uh, and my album's called Corset, and I got kind of like a sexy photo on the cover. And the other woman is her name is Wendy Ho, and uh, her her album cover she's sitting on a toilet, and her Mm. album is called Greatest Shits. So. (laughs) These things are so important and comics need to to think about what they name their tracks. My first track is called Human Shit because that's what the audience had to step over that night at the punchline to get Mm. to my show. Right. Mm. So I wasn't I never I didn't write it deliberately write a joke about a human shit. That's not really my lane. But I had to because we'd all been through something horrible. (laughs) <laughs> As we'd climb the steps So uh, I I don't know if that That's helping me in France But I think it definitely Helped me In the United States
1: I, I hope it's going to help you In Australia Human shit Right up our alley <laughs> I, <so> but <laughs> I think so I'd like to say This number one in Australia But uh, I was very interested in that choice. And now that you've brought it up, I, like, I hesitate to talk to about too much that's on the album because I want people to just be able to go and hear the album. Like, you know, it's an hour of your day. Listen to the album. Like, you know, like it's better that way. But let's talk about that opening track because I was so fascinated as a comedian, the fact that that's on your, like, it's on your album, right? This joke that clearly is only from that night because like, without giving it away, and it won't give it too much away, is there literally was a human shit that people had to walk past on the way to go to the gig, and the joke would only work if that were true. You couldn't just say, I'm the only person who saw the human shit out in that, like, it, the, the audience reaction is clear that, like, they have all walked past the human shit on the way to the gig. Now, Firstly, you know that's got to be new material or the person doing it is a psychopath who does a shit in the alleyway before every gig just so they can do that bit. Like, it's one of the two. But the fact that you are recording your album and you've decided to roll with that as, like, the first thing and then just put it on the album, like, that it's come out so well. Like, it sounds as well-written as any of the other... Like, do you mean, as in, like, there's a... It doesn't just feel like you're making an observation about something happens. It feels like you have here are my beats and my jokes about this thing that just happened. And, and it's so tell me about the choice to like use that show to leave that on the album. Like, was there any discussion about not putting it on the album?
2: I don't think there was. Um, no, uh, and as I listened to it when I was trying to, you know, help edit it, I was like, Oh, I thought it tags for it. And I'm like, no, you got to leave this alone. You're not bringing this back. So stop trying to punch this one up. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, there was just like this feeling when I, I told the other comics, I'm like, please don't mention it. Yeah. <laughs> leave, this, <laughs> leave this shit for me, please. I'm begging you. And uh, cause there's two entrances to the punchline. And if you went, if you went, uh, up from, uh, battery, I think it was battery, you had to not walk by, it. you had to step over it cause it was on right. one of the steps. And then of course the Starbucks cup was like one step away <laughs> and uh yeah I don't know I just it felt kind of natural and the audience the way that when I mentioned it they started going oh I was <laughs> I was like I love that sound <laughs> of the audience going yes they were vibrating cuz they had well, I think it, they had tried to forget it uh, and they were But
1: also know, in a very like I mean if it, it hadn't been you like in that situation headlighted that gig like ordinarily like the MC or the first act would have definitely mentioned the human shit. Sure. Like in the stairwell, yeah, 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 but the yeah. fact that you've gone to the effort of going, please so Guys. the audience has had time. Like the, Initially they would have been like, well, someone's going to talk about it. Right. And then after a while they would have been like, well, I guess no one's going to talk about it. And then it's like,
2: Oh, she's going to talk about it. <laughs> I got on my hands and knees. Please. I beg of you. That's one time I opened for Jimmy Pardo. And I uh-huh. like to talk to the crowd and Jimmy only talks to yeah. the crowd. Right. right. And, uh, and he and there was a 12 year old boy in the front row and my, he goes, I'm begging you, please don't talk to that kid. Yeah. And I was like, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> uh, that was my greatest comedy sacrifice was just doing my act without mentioning that there's a 12 year old boy in the front row. Uh,
1: talking to the audience, I'm interested in that, like, because. I do a, a a couple of different shows here. So I'll do a like a, a show that I call H- Horribly, but this is what I call it and I'm stuck with it now. It's called What You Talking About, Will? And it's like, that is, <laughs> it's, they're my improviser. So people know that it is, like, if you come to see that show, it is very much, I'll talk to the audience, I'll just riff, I'll say what happens, like that's, that is the show. And- I don't have an opening act for those shows because of this very thing that you're talking about, which is I would find that if there was anything that would be great for the show the person who came on before me. Like, I didn't want to be that person who put handcuffs on another performer. Like, what I really wanted them to do was just go out and do their thing and, you know, be as funny and interesting as they wanted to be. But what what, what is it about... Because you obviously are someone, as you demonstrate on the album, who writes these incredible jokes and has this great act. But what is it about talking to the audience that is interesting to you? Or using the audience that is interesting I, to you? I
2: kind of like... I kind of like getting volunteers from the audience a little bit, as opposed mm-hmm. to just going to the front row, you know, what's your name? What do you do? You know, like, uh, like, I like the idea of a volunteer from the dark, you know, right. I don't like it when the, the crowds right up front is talking to me. I like it when they're in the dark and I can't see right. them. And, um, uh, and I, and I always try to have a chunk ready in case it goes nowhere. Sometimes it doesn't go any place and um, uh, but I, it's always fun, and and I try to ask questions that lead into the jokes I was going to tell anyway. That just sort of add a few uh, ornaments to the Christmas tree, I guess. You know.
1: Uh, you, I'm conscious of time, and uh, you, there are some standard questions that I ask at the end. So I just want to start those so that we could, don't miss out on them. Uh, which is one of which we've kind of covered already. Which is. Yeah, you know, what do you think? I'm going to ask it more bluntly, but answer it however you will. You've obviously thought about this a fair bit. What do you think happens when we die?
2: Hmm. You know, I I uh, I I believe the fact that we have a yearning to reconnect with dead loved ones means that we will, because mm-hmm. usually when you really really want something, there's a way to get it, right? And I don't think we would have that yearning. I think we would we we wouldn't have a feeling about somebody dying if we didn't have a way to also uh have a have some kind of resolution to that to that pain, you know? Um or
0: <laughs> or we just
2: go right back into the ground and uh, we're over and it's just like before you're born and you don't have any memories, you know?
1: I mean, obviously when you've lost people that you love, like that's the main time where we hope that there's probably something else or something better or some way to reconnect with them. You know, what do you, what do you, maybe not even, what do you think? What do you hope? What do you hope?
2: I, I hope that we all get to reconnect with our, the people that we miss, you know, and that we all get to just be in a way that's, um, that we're unencumbered by everything that is pulling us down. And we will be because we won't be in our bodies anymore. And I can't even imagine what that must feel like. Maybe you get one second of that feeling during really good meditation or something, you know. And maybe that if we all were were able to have that indefinitely, that would be amazing.
1: When you're at your best, what does that look like?
2: Uh, <laughs> um, eight hours of sleep. That's it you know um then i i feel okay uh i i don't sleep that great so when i and i i only notice it when the, the when i do get 8 hours i'm like i feel amazing this is incredible <laughs> you know
1: um you guys heard this thing it's called sleep it's amazing <laughs>
2: yeah. Um, When am I at my best? I guess when I feel the best Mm -hmm. is every night when I'm home and my son is home and we're all both safe, cozy little bugs in our pajamas and I'm saying goodnight to him and we had another day together because we have limited days together so we got another one you know we snatched another one away out of the the jaws of death I guess and I always hope we get a couple more but that's that's when I feel the best you know so I'll, I'll it's what 5:30 now so in about four and a half hours I'll be in that place where my kids here I'm here and we had another day and it was really awesome
1: Do you have a parenting philosophy? Is there something that was really important to you, like, you know, in the way that you raised him?
2: I I feel, and I, you know, you'll see, well, I guess we'll see in the next 15 years if I was right, you know, but I kind of think they're born how they are, right? So, um, you know, he's, my kid's super, he's always loved to draw and he's really into that. So I've always supported it a lot. Um, You know, he's not into school. And so I'm just, I'm just trying to like, not panic too much, you know there's like- people that have their straight a students and and uh he was never like that and i and i I guess I kind of was like, well, I either you know become a person that's mad after school every day. And he becomes angry because he hates it, too. Or I just go, that's him. I hope it works. You know, I, mean, <laughs> I do know when someone's miserable in their childhood, yeah. it doesn't really work out later on in life, you know? Um, so uh, hopefully, he seems like a happy guy, happy-ish, you know? And uh, I, I, I hope that me being supportive of his art, I guess will help him have a happy life.
1: Yeah, well there's I mean I think you you've worked in an industry that's at least shown you that, that there are various different ways to earn a living, you know, like and the traditional schools idea of yeah, how people will earn a living or what intelligence is or what, you know, success is are actually very outdated measurements in a lot of ways. If it's not for that person, then uh, Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, as a non-parent, I have a lot of opinions.
2: (laughs) Well, also just listening to podcasts and all these deep interviews with people that ended up being successful-ish or successful, and a lot of them were awful students, you know, and it didn't make a difference. It doesn't, you know, um, so that kind of also taught me like, you know, I don't want to focus on the wrong thing and, and make a miserable person you know well, he doesn't want I, to be I, I, near
1: me. I, I have a bit of a pet theory that like your real skill that you need to be able to teach people is the capacity to keep learning, right? You know, cuz in life there's there's no one who knows everything that they need to know, you know, at 18 or 19 when they finish school or like or when they finish like, you know, university or whatever, like that's that's not you're meant to learn how learn how to learn and the thing that you're going to have to constantly do for the rest of your life is learn how to do new things. And if you make someone hate learning so much that they don't even like engage with the act of learning you'll find out how to you know if someone's passionate about something they'll find out how to learn right like you know if somebody wants to you know take a car apart like it doesn't matter what they got in their like their year 12 exams like they'll get a car and they'll start taking it apart and they'll learn how to rebuild it like that's yeah, as long as you haven't just made them so miserable that they don't want to learn how to do anything anymore.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, okay, who are you at your worst then? Like, you haven't got your eight hours of sleep. Like, what? what's Laurie Kilmartin at her worst?
2: That that I, I, I battle every day where I, especially now because I don't have a structure, um, I, I get lost where I, the hours go by. I haven't done anything. I can't account for, for you know, my... I I wouldn't be able to tell you what I did, you know, and I, I struggle with it now too. just this feeling of, I I kind of get lost in a doom part of my head and, um, uh, you know, the, and then I'm, I get happier when my kid gets home and I can start to get to the, that other place where I'm just happy we're all alive. But I have a real problem right now ongoing with, um, how to how to live my life without the structure of having a job?
1: Are you uh, good at like I mean because when the structure has been outsourced like for so long, like you know, it's much harder to then go. Well, you could put that own structure in your day, but are you good at putting your own structure in your day? Because you were like a good athlete, like when you were younger, right? A swimmer, right? And so, like, a lot of that is very structured as well, isn't it? Like, so...
2: For a comic, for a punk rock comic, I'm a total structure fiend. Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it comes across in your writing a bit as well. You do love structure. It's part of what you do, you know? Um, okay, so on my desk, I have a little... It's as close as I have to a motivational saying. I'm going to find it and read it. Oh, cool. Um, it's, it's on a little piece of uh, metal here that I just keep on my desk. And I, what I will explain first is how I interpret it, but I'm going to ask you the same question, and I would like you to interpret it however you want to interpret it. So um, uh, it says, what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? So for me... Like that's just really the way that it works for me is a reminder that when I'm looking at some project or show or whatever it is that to not think about it as, Oh, what do people want me to talk about? Or what are people talking about? Or what would be a good hot topic for like, you know, blah, 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 that'd get people interested, but rather go assume that it's super successful. What would you want it to be? Like, you know, like, you know, take all the other things out of the equation. So it's not, not, not really for me taking away the idea that you could fail, but I just like to think of what, if this did succeed, what would I like it to look like? But that does not mean that that's what it needs to be for you. I would like you to interpret it. However you would like to interpret it. So Laurie Kilmartin, what would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail?
2: I I think what would be really cool is to have a show on TV, like a a show that I liked, um, that I was proud of. And, And to be able to hire people and pay them well and provide health insurance and like creative people so that they can all get on their feet and then they they jump away from me and start their own things. And then they spread that all around um, where it's decent hours, where it's not like these. You know these they used to have i don't know what things are so different now but like some sitcoms would go to like two in the morning and you're like i've seen that show are you what <laughs> it looks like you all spend an hour on it you're telling me you didn't see your families for four years for this you know and i would love to create something that that allow people to have a great life and um and then spread that around as they started their own shows and companies.
1: Uh, is there a great piece of advice or a really terrible piece of advice or both? Like I prefer a terrible piece of advice that you were given that you later found out was completely incorrect. But like it might be a good piece of advice you've been given. I don't mind. Is there either?
2: I can't remember terrible advice. Um I mean, I did have a... There's an agent a lot of female comics had in, in Manhattan who used to tell us all to wear more blush. I like that, was, that was... That was all... What about my act? I didn't watch. That's I, I watched you from outside the room and I noticed that you look pale.
0: <laughs>
1: Um, have you been one of those people who's conscious about like how you present on stage? Like, I mean, obviously like like there is a real cliche that, you know, men in particular. I mean, there was suit and tie comics, of course, but then there was like, you know, very casual tracksuit panty sort of like, you know, comedic style as well. And you know, like women obviously get judged more harshly by how they present on stage. Has it been something that you are conscious about when you do your
0: act?
2: Oh, I love- to be comfortable um i don 't want to be aware of what i 'm wearing, you know, so um I am a little sporty, I guess, on stage, but not uh, i don 't wear sweats uh I wear yeah you know, like jeans and kind of boots that kind of a thing and also want to look uh intimidating uh, to the audience lest they think that we're uh <laughs> we're equals because we are not <laughs> I am talking you are <laughs> remaining silent and laughing when you when you're amused and that's it and if you are afraid i'm going to kick you in the face with my boots good that's fine <laughs>
1: Final question. This has been so good. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate having you on the show. Um, check out Laurie's new album. It's called Corset. It's um, on available everywhere that you get comedy albums. And is there a place that it's better for you that people purchase it? Or I, I don't know, download it or whatever. I'm it doesn't, hosed it doesn't matter. No
2: matter how you do it. So yeah. So wherever,
1: wherever you can get it, get it. Yeah. It's one of those ones, right? <laughs> yeah. And um, so uh, get that. And uh, while you're there, uh, download some of uh, Laurie's other albums as well. I highly recommend 45 Jokes About My Dead Dad. It's incredible. It's like, I mean, it's a special. That special is a special. Like, that is a special. It's a comedy album. It's a special, it, whatever it is. But, I mean, that's a show that to me. It should be talked about in the same way as people debate like what Dave Chappelle's doing or what Hannah Gadsby's doing or whatever. Thanks. Like it's <laughs> like I mean, seriously, it's fucking incredible comedy about like an incredibly dark time and subject and It's a fucking good show. Like, I've, I've, like, I mean, I listened to it when it first came out, but I re listened to it just the other day off the back of listening to the new album, and I was just like, fuck me, this is a good album. (laughs) Like, it stands up (laughs) too. You know what I mean? Like,
2: oh, good. Good, good. So
1: much comedy dates so quickly and so badly, it stands up so well. Anyway. Enough of the compliments. There is one final question and it is this. I have a time machine. I can take you to any point in the future, any point in history. Um, You can visit yourself. You can completely ignore yourself. You can go to a different time. It doesn't really matter. The only thing that I ask is that you do something selfish, that you do not do something on behalf of humanity. You don't go back and warn people about climate change unless that's your absolute passion and you don't go back and kill baby Hitler unless you just love killing babies. Like, this is for you, this trip.
2: Ooh, I guess most people say they, like, go back and buy shares of Google or Apple, right?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, if that's your choice, then that's fine. A lot of people, like, are curious about the future. Like, a lot of people are curious about the future. So, like, a lot of people want to go forward. Y- you a forward person or a backward person? I
2: think I'm a backwards person. Yeah. Uh, How far? Forward, I don't know. Who's going to be dead if I go forward? Ooh, I don't want right. to. Wouldn't you just be finding out all your friends and people you loved had died in horrible ways? And then your enemies are still alive doing shows. Why would you want to be? I don't want to live They've in that given world. given Rob
1: Schneider another special. <laughs>
2: oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs>
1: okay, so you're going to go back in time. Where would you go to?
2: Oh, my gosh. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I, don't know, I watch a lot of Outlander, so I'd love mm. to go back to Scotland. But somehow everyone's wearing deodorant. Um, yeah, <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> uh, gosh, well, maybe you could be, be the person who brought deodorant to Scotland. <laughs> you, know, you just yeah, go back amazing. with a, a bag of links.
2: I would love to. I'd love to. Um, I'd love to go. I'd love to go back and be my mom's friend. But knowing me, knowing that this late, this yeah. girl turned into my mom, because uh, she got very sad very quickly when her mother died, and her mother died when she was sixteen, but she was dying for many years, so it was very sad. And I feel like maybe when she was like five, she had she was peppy and happy, and I'd love to. Like be that the babysitter of five-year-old Joanne <laughs> and see if I could just infuse her with a little more positivity for the rest of her life because she would need it. And I, I would also tell when Violet, my grandma, came back from whatever night she was out, I'd go, hey, get that lump checked immediately. <laughs> I'm from the future. You can yeah. change everything <laughs> if you get that lump checked, please. <laughs>
1: Um, That's a great answer and it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much for doing it. Thanks,
2: Will.